You're listening to the LB Podcast on the Harbinger Media Network. Presented by Passage, the online journal of left Canadian thought and opinion. Find it at readpassage.com. Hear great shows like Fee Rouge and La Planche des Vaches. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Welcome to episode 10 of the LB Podcast for Friday, November 13th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Markovich. On this week's episode, we talk about the Conservative government in Ontario and Doug Ford's ineptitude in handling the COVID crisis. I welcome a couple of current and former NDP MPPs in Ontario in Matthew Green and Sherry DeNovo. We talk about the federal and provincial levels of government and the groups of citizens that are so far being ignored. And later in the show, I welcome Toronto columnist and journalist Vicky Mochama to the podcast. We talk about the federal budget, black journalism, and how the pandemic is disproportionately affecting people of color in Toronto. First and foremost, I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here, if you don't mind. Pardon my French, but what the fuck is going on in Ontario right now? Has Doug Ford been asleep the past few months? Has he been spending too much time with photo ops at McDonald's? I mean, who is in charge here? It certainly doesn't appear to be the chief medical health officer, whom he keeps contradicting every five minutes. Yet when he's criticized or asked a question by reporters... He keeps deferring back to the Ministry of Health, saying they're handling it. But Doug Ford doesn't seem to realize that the buck stops with him. He's the premier. He's in charge of this government. He needs to do something about COVID. And just what happened to the $9.3 billion of federal money that went to Ontario? Where has it gone? No one seems to know. And why has it taken the government so long to get to this point? And why are they even considering reopening businesses when cases are spiraling out of control. We're talking over 1,500 a day. It absolutely astonishes me that public health officials haven't done something sooner to call out the failings of this government until today. Now, I understand that they're in a difficult position, having to deal with an uncooperative and less than forthcoming government, at the same time having to balance that with being transparent to the public. But at some point, Something's got to give. Whether it's the public health system, the political system, someone is going to have to make a concession sooner or later. And the longer this drags on, the more people are going to die in Ontario. And if the people of Ontario want this to stop, they're going to have to take their collective heads out of the sand and stop lionizing politicians like Doug Ford who really don't give a shit about them. I can recall back in August when he laughed at Denmark's proposal. He laughed at Denmark's proposal to tax the most wealthy. And today he wants to dismiss our plan to have the most wealthy among us, the 87 families who have more wealth 
than the bottom half of this country. He defended them with the very tired assertion that corporations are people. Let's talk about those people, Madam Speaker. Let's talk about Bezos and Zuckerbergs and the Westins, all these people who have profited off of this pandemic. What does he have to say to the people on the front lines that we declared essential? who had their pandemic base rolled back while the wealthy people that he's defending right now, right now, have made record profits during this pandemic. Joining me now on the show is one of the NDP's rising stars, and he is the MP for Hamilton Centre, Matthew Green. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you tonight. So let's start by talking about how you got involved in politics. What made you decide to want to run for office in the first place? Well, like most people coming from a place of activism, you look at a problem long enough and you recognize that the solution is not going to the table of those with power and asking them to change, that they will fundamentally not change. And even when they do, they make you feel like they're doing you a favor or worse, you owe them a favor. And it's a type of transactional politic that I just quite frankly had enough of. So I was involved in some organizing here around keeping a casino out of our inner city, recognizing that our communities have some of the highest levels of poverty and recognizing that problem gambling comes from people who are already living in poverty, those with the least to, the least, um, to, ha- like to give lose the most. And so we organized a really broad-based coalition of people to fight off against Paul Godfrey and Rod Phillips, who are like local Ontario power brokers. Rod Phillips now being a minister in the Ontario government. Paul Godfrey being a, I think he was involved with like the National Post or one of those big news changes. And we shut it down um, because the average life expectancy in our neighborhoods was like 63 years of age. And they wanted to bring this casino in. And I think for most people in our community, what we recognize for the first time is that we got to win. And that doesn't happen a lot in grassroots activism. You're normally just crushed by big money interests. Uh, but we did it in the right way. And, and we, we, I think for the first time, recognized our own people power. And then I realized, like, I'm just done with asking politicians to do the right thing. So that accountability meant demanding and fighting for and working for my own seat at the table. Now, you ran uh, initially for city council and then made the jump to federal politics um, in the last federal election. And you won pretty handily with over 40% of the vote. Now, what's been the biggest difference that you've seen in civic politics uh, at the municipal level versus at the federal level? So I started off in civic politics mostly because I didn't feel like my values or even my people, quite frankly, were reflected in partisan politics. I didn't see myself reflected in any party. And that's always been a problem. When I was elected a city councilor, I was elected as the first person of African Canadian descent in 170 plus years of the municipality of the city of Hamilton. So it's always about forcing your way into spaces that typically are not made for you. They're not designed for you. You know that, but you do it anyways. But I went to the city level because I had watched the decades of, uh, you know, predatory planning on our neighborhoods, policies of social containment around the social pressures, uh, austerity around the social determinants of health. And I thought like this was the level of intervention that would provide the quickest response. And it is by far city councillors 
are involved with more day-to-day aspects of somebody's life than any possible other level of government, for sure. That is true. But what I also recognized as a city councilor for four years is that I continued to be left with treating the symptoms of really bad policy from upper levels of government. So much like the activist who had to come to council to ask city council to do the right thing, city council would have to go to upper levels of government to ask them to do the right thing. So when you look at things like housing and homelessness, we were putting band-aids on gunshot wounds. And I recognized that I was only treating the, the, the symptoms and not the systems. And so we're in a new civil rights. We're in this age of, you know, hyper um, austerity and extractionary capitalism. And I was fighting Embridge as a city councilor, but recognizing like I was just losing. So when I made the decision to run, I did it recognizing that I would have a bigger national platform to champion the issues of my residents, my neighbors, my friends, my, my constituents, um, and not lose sight of what, what the end goal was in mind, which was to like really drag the Overton window like back towards the left and discourse so that we can no longer allow liberals and liberalism to present as this like faux aggressive alternative to conservatism when it's absolutely not. People are homeless in Ontario because of 15 years of liberal government, not Doug Ford. I know it's uneasy for people to say because they want to vilify Doug Ford, but the tents and the encampments are here under 15 years of legislative poverty with ODSP and Ontario works cuts to housing, cuts to healthcare, cuts to mental health supports. Uh, has laid the groundwork for what we're seeing right now as as a social disaster in our communities. Let's talk a bit about that because you wasted no time in Parliament talking about those very issues that sent you to office as a representative of Hamilton Centre and as someone who came from City Council and had to deal with the upper levels of government. You introduced a web series on Twitter and on Periscope that you called Parl to the People. And it's, been, it's proven really, really popular. I've been following it actually since it started when you first got elected and you put your very first video on Twitter. I watched it. That's amazing, man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I've been following it. And now it I get to be on your time. show, bro. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> that is the beauty of Twitter. Mm-hmm. This is and politics 3.0, man. That's right. And that's when I first sent out the invite to you to, to come onto my show was when yep. I noticed that you were doing this because very few politicians give this level of access. And that's part and parcel to what we've seen, to your point, of liberal and conservative governments giving levels of access to multinational corporations and to lobbyists when it's the people that elect them. And your parl to the people has given some of that power back and, as you said, moved that Overton window just ever so slightly. So tell us a little bit about Parl to the People and how that has kind of changed a little bit of the conversation. Yeah, for me, that's just, that's my praxis. So I'd shared, you know, with you that when I first got on council, I was really upset about a, a, a journalist who took my quotes out of context, quotes from two different subjects, put them together and really muddied what my position was on a critical topic. And I talked to a a friend of mine, uh, Laura Babcock. I said, Laura, like, I can't believe it. I was disgusted. I thought there was integrity in journalism. Wow, was I naive. 
And she said, I quote, don't get mad at the media, become the media. So I went out and picked up a Mevo, which is a live stream, little cam, um, put it on my desk and I would, I would talk through my motions, through my debates. And I created a series as a city councilor called Civex, Cities Made Simple. And I wanted to demystify the process of government because one of the ways that power keeps people politically estranged is they keep it esoteric. They make it seem like it's a secret thing that only a certain select people know how to do. The adults in the room, just leave it to us and we'll figure it out. But the stark reality is, the stark reality is that nobody has the answers. And it's a scary thing to say because our democracy is delicate but we can see it around the world that those that have pretended to have the answers have failed, continue to fail and will continue to fail us if we don't take back uh, those positions of power. And so for me going into Ottawa, the deal was that I was never concerned about being on mainstream media panels or being on, you know, major uh, syndicated news outlets, which is like, the cookie economy of Ottawa, right? You build your profile by getting the right interview with the right journalist and it's this whole thing. It's an in-game. I'm like, I don't need that in politics 3.0. We're a distributed model online. I can go directly to people. Parle to the people is parliament to the people, but obviously with a little shout out to the Franglais with the French, I'm speaking directly to the people. So for the moment I got there, I wanted to demystify it so that people can see in me somebody who grew up you know, working class, uh, middle class, Hamilton, Ontario, you know, somebody that nobody would have put their bets on is, is a member of the House of Commons. And you know what? I deserve to be there. And so do you. And the bankers and the Wall Street elite, the religious, social conservatives and everybody else who have carved out their niches in Ottawa need to be challenged at every single turn. So that's what's up with that. You know, pile to the people, keeping it real. Last night I had Jagmeet on and we got real. We had a candid conversation that typically would only happen in caucus because it would be so tightly managed, uh, focus grouped, you know, trying to get the right sound bite on the right comment on the right issue. And we just spoke to people and we kept it real. Now let's talk about um, some more specific things that have uh, been discussed in Parliament recently. Uh, you gave a speech back in July about poverty and homelessness and the amendments to Bill C-20 and how it left out a lot of a lot of different folks, including people with disabilities, people who are homeless, and folks that otherwise don't get access to CERB. And to that end, a petition was circulated, uh, which has your support. Um, it's petition E-2821 on the um, uh, our Commons website, and I'll read some of the petition uh, here and to give some context on what the petition is calling for. And it has right now about 2,800 signatures. We, the undersigned citizens and residents of Canada, call upon the government of Canada to immediately expand the eligibility of the CERB to include those who were previously deemed ineligible due to poverty, disability, or other circumstances that have prevented them from meeting the minimum earnings required to qualify for CERB and that payments be backdated to March 15th, 2020. 
and continue to provide equal support for Canadians as outlined above for the duration of CERB, as well as continuing to provide this support indefinitely through a guaranteed basic income with the monthly rate increased annually to reflect any increases in the cost of living. Now, when it comes to folks with disability, you mentioned this um, before we uh, talked on the show, that folks on ODSP, folks on Ontario Works are making below what the CERB is currently paying out to folks who can't work. And it's not to say that folks that can't work don't deserve the money. They do. Everyone deserves to have a basic income. Everyone deserves to have a roof over the heads. That shouldn't even be an issue. What is an issue, though, is folks on disability and Ontario Works don't even qualify for CERB because they're already getting payments from the Ontario government, which are already at, which are already below the the poverty line. And these folks don't have the resources to work. They don't have the resources to help themselves during a pandemic in a lot of cases, and they don't have the supports needed to ensure that they can still get the the groceries they need, the medications they need, or any of the other services they would need under normal circumstances, let alone during a pandemic. So talk a little bit about this petition and what, um, what it has garnered in support so far. Sure. So I, I just want to share by, I want to start by sharing, you know, the stories and the suffering that I've, that I've seen and heard from people across the country. It's very real. Uh, and I start there because at every step along the way, this government has twisted and contorted themselves to find ways to design programs around quote unquote means testing to exclude their responsibility to Canadians in a once in a lifetime plague, for lack of a better term. You know, but in Hamilton, we had an experience in Ontario where the Liberal government flirted with a guaranteed basic income. And for Ontarians that are living with disabilities, disabled people, they will will readily tell you that those rates haven't been raised since the days of Mike Harris in the 1990s. Both Conservatives and Liberal governments have refused to shift people out of legislative poverty. That's what we're doing. Even when the Liberal government provincially provided a guaranteed basic income, they still legislated it below the low income cutoff. This is legislated poverty. And to make matters worse, what was exposed is an analysis that I'll share with you, language that was given to me by my friend and comrade Sarah Jama from the Disability Justice Network. That is an analysis on disability justice that is a critique on capitalism understanding that the value of people in this country is only measured in so much of their ability to provide for the, for the GDP, for Bay Street, for the stock markets, for big corporations. And what we witnessed in the exclusion of people with disabilities, in the paltry $600 disability tax credit that they gave out to 60% of the people, many of whom uh, were not the most uh, uh, in need, and that was a one-time payment, by the way. Still that hasn't wasn't been received. even in conjunction with any regular payments. That was one time. One time, still hasn't even been received by a lot of people. They do that knowing they're leaving people out, and they further confirm the, the analysis, the critique of capitalism that is quite right, that they simply don't value people who don't, 
provide their surplus labor to the gross domestic product. People who are on Ontario Works, deep legislated poverty, single males, single people at $720 a month. That is a form of social murder. When you recognize that there's no, while they have put strong caps and freezes and austerity on social assistance, the cost of rent continues to rise astronomically. The cost of food continues to rise astronomically. You put COVID on top of that, transportation for people, all of these ancillary things that when you are living in poverty, poverty is expensive. And it's, a, and it's an illness that, um, you know, that could be solved by solid social policy. So that petition came to me as an extension to parl to the people, relationships with people that I built online, listening, engaging, and responding, uh, folks wanting to take and discover and rediscover or claim their own power and, and have their voice heard. So shout out to Jay, who drafted that petition and asked me to sponsor it and then went on to champion it. You know, those, the, the, the words in that petition are his words. We worked in that with my office, but those are his words. And there are so few points where people can interact in a participatory way with democracy. At the petition is one of the, one of the, the first and, and uh, most accessible access points. So that's where that came. It came from observing suffering up close well before COVID and then exacerbated by COVID and seeing it and having people share their stories where you have people with disabilities signing up for assisted suicide. If that's not social murder, I don't know what is. That's all policy. That's all budget. Those are all decisions that are being made around tables that, that, that convene around power at all levels of government. Members of parliament like you, Nikki Ashton, Jagmeet Singh, there, you guys are the future of the party, for lack of a better term, because you have spoken out from the beginning on social issues that matter, not just historically, but in the here and now. And you re also represent a younger crowd of, you know, a younger pool of NDP voters, um, and also a more diverse crowd in terms of representation. What does that mean for you personally to be a part of this new movement within the party? And how are you going to channel it to get more supporters on board with the party moving forward? Yeah, I would suggest, you know, that I would respectfully reject the premise of the question. The future of the party hasn't been elected yet. And the folks that got reelected from previous terms are pretty radical folks. Like they're folks that have gone through the ups and downs of the party. And I wouldn't want to take away from the work that they've done. There's definitely a generational shift happening in politics across the board. You know, Jigmeet Trudeau is like getting old in his age in terms of when he came onto the scene with that brand. If you look at the young conservatives that are elected, in their caucus, members of the bloc who are also very young. Uh, I think what we're seeing is a mobilization of younger people. And the folks that were there before us, the only reason why this was allowed to happen, quite frankly, is because the incumbent who was here before me decided that he was going to retire and not run again. 
Had he not done that, I wouldn't be here because of the way those mechanisms work. And so my faith is actually vested in my whole caucus. Like, do we agree on everything? No, we don't. We certainly do not agree on any, everything. I think by and large, like 85% of the things we, we agree on strongly and the remaining 15% are still within the context of the values, the shared values of our party for the most part. There's a small percentage of things that we're going to disagree on as new Democrats. I disagree on the things, some of the things that John Horgan does in BC. You know, I disagree on some of the things that happen in other parts of the country. My own, my own self personally, because I'm not from those countries, I'm not um, provinces, I'm not from those parts of the country. And so from my perspective, those are not my politics. However, I stand firm on the, on the understanding that Canadians are better served when more Democrats, more new Democrats are elected. And they're better served by them as well. So like where I draw my hope from is not even like, I, bro, tomorrow I turn 40. So I'm not going to pretend to be like new gen. Uh, I feel young. I got lots of energy. But the real youth, when you look at folks like Mumalak Kluk Kluk, who's coming out, um, you know, just an absolute dynamo. The people that I see online, some of the folks that are, that are going to be on their way up in Saskatchewan. If you want to see a breath of fresh air of like new progressive voices emerging, look to the election in New Brunswick where nobody's looking, which by the way, you can donate to New Brunswick and Saskatchewan from out of province. That's what solidarity looks like. But you look at Mackenzie Tomlinson, who just went on to call out the Irvings and the, you know, the McCains and talking about those values that we share as New Democrats across the country. That's where I draw like my inspiration from are the folks that are just starting out who haven't been elected yet, but you better watch out when they are. Matthew Green is the Hamilton Center NDP MP. You can find him on Twitter and you can also listen in and watch to his parl to the people at Matthew Green NDP. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Have yourself a pleasant evening and stay safe out there. Thanks for having me on, man. Sorry for the long answers. <laughs> Coming up, I speak with Sherry DeNovo about life as an ordained minister and some of her wide-ranging political history in Toronto and beyond. And later in the show, I talk with Vicky Mochama about black journalism and the concept of mutual aid during a pandemic. Joining me now on the show is the former Ontario NDP MPP for Parkdale High Park. She's also a member of the Order of Canada and performed one of the first same-sex marriages in Canada, Sherry DeNovo. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. It was actually the first legalized same-sex marriage oh, in yes, Canada. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I see. yeah, and I also had the honor uh, while in uh, government for 12 years of passing the most LGBTQ legislation in Canada's history. So um, shows you can get stuff done even uh, in opposition. But anyway, it's great to be with you. So let's start by first talking about some of your history. Uh, number one, how you decided to run for politics. And number two, what made you decide to follow your path and become an ordained minister? 
Sure. Uh, well, the minister is a whole other thing. Uh, happened much, much earlier. Um, but um, I had never. I've, I've always been a social justice activist. Always, always a socialist. And uh, when I did the first legalized same-sex marriage, which happened before the law changed in this province, um, at that point the wedding uh, license just said bride and groom, didn't say male or female. Married two women of color. We sent it in, hoping that it would pass. It passed. They gave them their license. So, you know, all hell broke loose at that point. It was a lot of fun. Um, the government threatened here to take away my license. Uh, church didn't back me up, yada, yada. Um, and because of all that, um, we and my church at the time, which is in Parkdale, had gained a very high profile. And because of the high profile, because the church had grown substantially, um, especially with a lot of LGBTQ uh, folk and also with... Um, folk who were living rough and street folk. Um, uh, the NDP came and asked me if I would consider running for them. So it was really Peggy Nash, who was MP in our, our area at that point, who came and asked me if I'd consider uh, running. And I'd never considered kind of running, um, even though I'd been an erstwhile member of the NDP, you know, going back a while. Um, I was one of the Trotskyists. They were trying to drum out of the party when I was younger. So I hadn't been a member for a while. Um, but at any rate, um, it took me a, a couple of months, but I said yes, um, won the nomination race and won a really hard fought by-election battle where we had everybody in the riding um, because it was held by uh, Gerard Kennedy who ran at one point to be the leader of the Liberal Party and was the education minister here. So, so that's how I got into politics. Um, and I was extremely green about what electoral politics was all about. I didn't have a clue. Um, I learned very fast. Um, so uh, there was that. Ministry was a whole other thing. Um, ministry, uh, at, that, at the point that I walked into a church for the first time was when the United Church of Canada in 88 uh, started ordaining openly gay and lesbian folk, and I would never have walked into a church other than that. And I, I also walked in because uh, that was the Iraq war invasion, um, the first one. And uh, at that point, I had a business going, I was making a bunch of money and <laughs> lived in a fairly wealthy upscale community in Toronto in the suburbs. Uh, and some of my neighbors were cheering as the bombs were dropping. And I thought, uh-uh, okay, got to get active again. And there was a wonderful speaker series at our local United Church um, on uh, what constituted a just war or not. So I wandered into the church then. Um, and also, you know, for the spiritual reason that, you know, I've, uh, my moods were dependent on my company's billings. And remember, I owned the company. Um, and, uh, and we were looking at a recession in the early 90s. And I realized that my, my moods uh, were really directly um, equivalent to my billings. And I thought, you know, that's not good. Like, that's not good. Even though it's about my employees as well as me, it's still not a way to live. So I experienced capitalism firsthand. <laughs> I also experienced capitalism firsthand as a street kid. You know, I lived on the streets. I, I left home at 15 and have been self-supporting since then and um, was drug involved, which the liberals used against me in my election, by the way, big time. It was, they were, it was a huge smear campaign. Um, and so I experienced capitalism on the streets and capitalism in the boardroom. And I didn't see much of a difference actually between, <laughs> between the two, except that the one in the boardroom made way more money, was way less risky and um, was more socially condoned. So long story short, that's it. 
And in conjunction with your role as an ordained minister, you also run a podcast through your website called The Radical Reverend. Tell us a little bit about the show and your last episode, as I understand that you had Andre Domis and David Slavic to talk about the last U.S. election. Yes, so uh, The Radical Reverend show is also a radio show here. Uh, on alternative radio. We only have one alternative radio now in Toronto. And so it's been on there for 20 years off and on. Uh, I've had everybody on that show from Christopher Freeland <laughs> to everybody, um, you know, across the political spectrum um, and also faith panels. That, uh, that particular show, and it's also a podcast, and that particular show called Law and Disorder is our Law and Disorder episode that happens once a month where we have lawyers uh, or people with legal backgrounds speaking about legal issues just happened to be the one that fell after the uh, U.S. election. So Andre uh, Demise is a, an assistant editor at McLean's, which is um, wild, really, when you think about it, um, as an out communist. And um, so there was a little bit of repartee back and forth between, you know, the Trotskyists and the Stalinists. It was all in good jest, right? And David Slavic, um, a former uh, strategist uh, in the US, worked for the Democratic Party and is certainly on the left of the Democratic Party. So it was a really interesting discussion um, about, you know, um, I, I, I mean, I think two out of three of us thought, yes, you go and vote, um, you vote against Trump. But um, Andre didn't agree, didn't think, you know, you should vote at all. Um, basically, it's lesser evilism. Got it. Um, so, uh, but then all the problems that we're looking at with the Biden administration as well. And the fact that, you know, the Democratic Party is still, you know, it's still indebted to Wall Street. Uh, and, and certain utterings from people like um, uh, AOC and others since the election, um, have really highlighted that. In fact, her uh, interview with the New York Times, which I had not read at the time of my particular uh, show and podcast, um, really points out the, the problems of what it's like to be a left-leaning Democrat in the Democratic Party, even to the point that she said she's thinking of maybe not running again, which was significant. And actually, I really rang with that because it, it said a lot. It, it spoke to me a, a great deal about what it was like to be in the NDP. <laughs> uh, you know, um, So, you know, what happens when you get into a quotes and quotes progressive party? What does that look like? Uh, you know, how do you get things done? You know, what do you have to work with and against? Um, so that's the problem. And uh, yeah, by all means, uh, uh, I hope your listeners tune into that as a good discussion, as are the others too. Yeah, I like what you said about the identity of the Democratic Party and the NDP here in Canada, because I spoke a couple of weeks ago with Marie Danielle Smith uh, from McLean's, and the interview is going to be posted this week, as well as I think in print for the December issue. We talked about the NDP's journey to official opposition back in 2011, and then back to third party status again. And now they seem to be stuck in that third party status. And one of the things we talked about is the NDP's identity, you know, like, who do they want to be? Do they want to be a more liberal party? Do they want to be a socialist party? Do they want to be a workers party? Or do they want to be some sort of big tent party where they welcome environmentalists, labor folks, et cetera, et cetera? And if so, how are they going to challenge for power when there's so much infighting? Now, I know that there's nuance involved within movements and things like that. But when talking about party structures and policy, that directly contradicts what the provinces are doing, and BC and Alberta are perfect examples of that, 
where the provincial wings are heavily focused on resource development and with the oil sands in Alberta and LNG here in BC, the federal party, and in particular their leader Jagmeet Singh, have failed and refused to take a position for the fear that it would contradict and harm the provincial parties and their goals and stuff like that. But then that belies the whole point of taking a position in the first place, taking a stand. I mean, that's what socialists and social democrats are supposed to do, is take a stand. We don't tend to see that kind of equivocation on policy from conservatives as, you know, they know who their base are and they cater to them. I mean, liberals, you could go on for days about their hypocrisy. When you look at what new Democrats should be talking about and should be consistent on, energy policy is a huge problem. And until the NDP federally gets in line with a position and stands by it, no one's going to believe a word they say. Absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right. And we saw the this interesting movement within the green leadership race um, where Dimitri was sounding more socialist than we are. Um, and uh, and uh, one of my uh more favorite uh, journalists out here, Nora Loretto, um, who's very active on Twitter, um, uh, talked about, you know, why don't the Greens join the NDP? Uh, to a certain extent, I would agree, but only the eco-socialist Greens, um, and then only um, with the eco-socialist NDPers, you know what I mean? So, um, so, so really, I, I mean, I think the, the basic question one has to answer is, uh, will, can capitalism coexist with existence, <laughs> can the planet exist with capitalism? And the, I think the answer is very telling. If you think yes, um, then you're Blairite and a big tenty attempt a liberal. Um, you know, if you think no, um, it cannot. Um, you know, at, it, it just simply cannot. I mean, we we cannot uh, have huge energy companies. Um, dictating uh, policy. And that's what's happened. We can't have the banks and everything they represent and their clientele representing um, uh, what our climate action process is going to look like, because we're not going to, I mean, ultimately, we will not keep a planet if we do that. So that's the critical existential question of our times. But there are others, you know, uh, and, and again, um, as long as the NDP keeps trying to supplant and be the Liberal Party, which has been a project of it since the, its foundation, sadly, when they stopped being the CCF, then, um, then we are never going to have the identity we need and the difference we need to stand on our own and to be considered an actual alternative to conservatism. So, I mean, the, the liberals will always be better liberals than we are, and they will always run to the left and govern to the right. Um, they'll always do just enough um, to be able to capture most of our vote and um, <laughs> it federally, and um, we'll always be a third party. Um, so, and only in times of liberal collapse, which we saw here in Ontario, um, and even then we couldn't pull it out, um, even then the Conservatives won a majority, um, you know, do we do well? And that, um, and, and that, you know, it, it, that's no way forward, but try to tell that to, you know, the back room of our party, try to tell it to the leadership. Um, they still think they're trying to appeal to this. And, and to be fair, I think part of the problem is also union leadership. So we have to look at that because if, I've always said, you know, the NDP, it, you know, the reason to vote for it primarily and, and, and certainly 
um, often the only reason to vote for it is it's a labor party, is it does represent the labor movement to a degree. The problem with the labor movement, however, is some of the labor leadership. So where you have, and you were speaking, Chris, so eloquently about the resource issue, um, where you have, and I remember debating the head of the Alberta Labor Union on this issue after the debacle of the Mulcair fiasco, um, and, and you know, you, you just simply have to have labor leadership that has some foresight around climate issues and that sees a green economy as being the only way forward for good, sustainable jobs and more of them. So, yeah. Let's talk now about the Ontario government and the upgrade that they've given to Canada Christian College to university status. Now, as you know, the, the person leading that institution, Charles McVitie, is widely known for his bigoted stances on LGBTQ rights, reproductive rights, and for his views on evolution, and yet is a friend of Doug Ford's personally and has been a supporter of his in the past. Uh, there's also been a variety of social media posts showing the two of them together that the Ontario PCs have worked very hard to scrub from the internet. But as we all know, the internet's forever. So let's talk a little bit about that and some of the backlash that surfaced in response to that. Absolutely. Uh, so Charles McVitie uh, and I used to uh, debate uh, equal marriage back in the day. And we, you know, like that's been going on for 20 years almost. Um, and every time I would bring in an LGBTQ bill. So the first one was to add trans rights to human rights, which I fought with the liberals for time and again, finally got consensus and got it passed. Um, uh, it was named after my music director, actually, at my church, who was trans. Um, so Charles McFeedie came and testified at that committee against that bill. Uh, he uh, came and testified against gay-straight alliances in schools. He came and testified against uh, another bill that finally became law on parent equality. Um, you know, seeing um, queer parents, uh, you know, ha have the same rights as straight parents. He came and testified against a trans day of remembrance where the house is required to stand and observe a moment of silence, which they do still because it's the law because uh, of my bill made law. Um, and he testified against that. Uh, uh, Christine Elliott, who's the deputy premier signed on to two of those bills. So um, uh, it's hard to imagine how she can possibly think that this is a good move, uh, even as a conservative. So this man is, and he's not only known for being anti-LGBTQ um, and vociferously so, not quietly so, like out so. <laughs> uh, he's also uh, Islamophobic, um, has said incredibly racist things. Um, when my bill to ban conversion therapy, which was the first uh, in a jurisdiction of any size in North America, Gandhi testified against that um, with, a, with horrible vitriol against uh, against LGBTQ kids. Um, and again, you know, we know that this leads to a higher suicide rate among LGBTQ youth. So um, that's who he is. Uh, that's what his college teaches. Um, and how in, the, in anybody's right mind can we imagine giving this university status? Also, there's the question of outright fraud. His, his son is a vice pre president of that college, no nepotism there. And both of them have taken up to a million dollars in loans, quotes unquote, from the college to buy things like skidoos. So again, um, hopefully the hope is, uh, this is part of a big uh, omnibus bill as a, a lot of uh, 
things in it. Um, the hope is it does get to committee. I mean, they don't have to send it there. Their majority can do anything they want. But the hope is it does get to committee, and maybe this is one of one of those uh, aspects of the bill that can be negotiated out. But whatever happens, I mean, the stain is there. Um, we get it. We know who Ford is. We knew who Ford was and his brother was before we elected him in this province. So, um, yeah, it's horrible, but sadly, no surprise. Yeah, and it's also no surprise that Doug Ford has mishandled the COVID crisis as in the last three days, we've seen an increase of over 2,500 cases and about 1,100 in the past 48 hours alone, with the vast majority of them being in Toronto. And as everyone knows, Toronto is a very expensive place to live with a lot of folks that are homeless or in very precarious living situations. And there's no ban on evictions anymore. Um, you know, the, the rent rates have not been frozen at all and are very likely to go up again in a few months. And by all accounts, the premier seems to have given up. And even today in his press conference, he deferred to the municipal authorities and health officials, saying that he trusts whatever they plan to implement. So why is he even taking the podium in the first place? If he's not going to provide any sort of decisive action, whether it's through the chief medical health officer or not, why is he just abdicating all responsibility? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the situation here is deplorable. It's actually verging on criminal when it comes to, uh, for example, long-term care, where 80% of the deaths have occurred, not just here, but across the country, but where we've looked at 200 deaths in long-term care since September um, in this province. That's outrageous. If I were a family of one of those folk that have died, I would be hiring a lawyer, um, and I certainly wouldn't be paying their fees every month. Um, uh, so we, we need to make public what's private in the long-term care um, field for sure. Um, our schools, we know now are super spreaders. Um, we knew that when they opened unsafely with classrooms that were far too large and crowded and buses that were nowhere near, um, you know, uh, the, the ideal of physically spacing students. Um, and then, of course, the kids take it home to their parents who take it to everybody. Um, so that's happened, too, under their watch because of the underfunding of public education here, which, by the way, as is a clear mandate. They're trying to privatize education in this province. That's very clear. I would not be surprised at all if we didn't hear talk of voucher systems similar to what's destroyed public education in the states which by the way, partly responsible for the Trump phenomena, the lack of education for those who don't have any money. Um, so, so all of that, and yes, um, not, I mean, the real, the real um, number is a 4.2, over 4% positivity rate in testing, which is still far too low. So, um, you know, we're, we're about 40,000 tests now, we should be 100,000 um, in a province of size, we are not, they promised 50, We've, we haven't come close to that. Um, so we're, you know, smart people are in lockdown, but not because the government tells them so. And clearly uh, Ford is doing this on behalf of business. So there's no question that he's choosing business over lives. It's that direct. Um, I know a number of people have to go to work at unsafe conditions. What are they going to do? We don't even have sick days that are paid for off. So um, it's outrageous. You spoke about housing. Let me tell you that uh, I was a housing critic in my one of my very first portfolios uh, at uh, Queens Park in opposition. And, uh, you know, here's a simple reality. Um, politicians, governments of all stripes could end homelessness 
tomorrow is political will. They simply don't have it. Um, we know what to do to end uh, the housing crisis. Give people homes. It's that simple. Um, we've got upwards of 60,000 empty units in Toronto alone right now in condos and hotel rooms. People could be housed and they are not being housed because the government will not put up the money and doesn't have the political will to make developers do what they should be doing, which is inclusionary zoning, forcing developers to set aside a certain number of units for um, those who need housing. Uh, it's very direct and very clear. And by the way, it doesn't save them any money. Um, one of the most telling aspects of when I had that portfolio was to sit in front of a then liberal housing minister and say, you know, it costs you more to keep someone in a shelter than it does to keep someone in, in a, a hotel at this point. Like, it's ridiculous. It's it's. Uh, it's uh, I'll use a, a word that that will ring in face circles, but it's sinful because um, it's not about the money. The fact is what they need to do is put a lot of money up front. And when you look at the childcare portfolio, it's the same. You put a lot of money up front and within, you know, seven to eight to 10 years, you get all that money back. You make it back. Childcare, it's in taxes. In housing, it's saving money on you know, the justice system, healthcare, shelter system, everything that keeps people poor. Um, and they're just not willing to do it because some other political party might cut the ribbon on that housing development. I mean, it's partisanship at its worst. It's bookkeeping versus econ economic thinking. Um, and so uh, that is politicians. And it was disgusting and it's so disgusting. I, I don't even enter into discussions about it anymore. I mean, how many world commissions have been done on this? How many studies have been done in every province and federally? You could build houses out of those studies. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's just criminal at this point. And, um, uh, and so now what we're doing in Toronto, um, or some of us are doing, I, I, I always hear about it a little too late, but is literally when somebody's going to be evicted, we just show up, you know, people show up on the doorstep, they stand off against police, they refuse to allow them to be evicted. And I think that's where the struggle is at around housing. It's literally on the streets now, where we have to fight for every single person. Um, and, uh, and that, it, of course, it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Sherry DeNovo is an ordained United Church minister with the Trinity St. Paul's Centre for Faith, Justice and the Arts, and is also the former Ontario MPP for Parkdale High Park in Toronto. You can find her on Twitter at Sherry DeNovo, and you can also find her on her website, sherrydenovo.ca. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. All the best and stay safe. Been so much fun, Chris. Thanks so much. Coming up, I speak with Vicky Mochama, about how people of color are coping during COVID and the recent federal grant provided for black journalists. Joining me now on the show is a Canadian columnist and commentator, Vicky Mochama. Thank you so much for joining me. No, you're welcome. So there's been quite a few developments in the 
federal political landscape over the past couple of weeks. Um, we heard the throne speech last week from, Premier, uh, from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the reaction from the opposition parties. Obviously, the Conservatives and the Bloc intend to vote against whatever measures are being presented in the budget, which is uh, effectively taking shape this week and um, probably next week as well. Uh, the NDP has been fighting for some measures to be included in the budget, which the Liberals have agreed to in principle. Um, we'll see what happens when uh, Penn gets put to paper. What's your reaction to what's been happening with uh, Parliament resuming and the support from the NDP on the Liberals? Well, I think in, in terms of what the NDP are saying is that they don't disagree in... In, uh, as a whole, with anything the Liberals have planned, you know, they also agree, agree that poverty is a problem, that inequality is a problem, that housing and homelessness is something that Canada should seek to eradicate. Um, and the NDP agrees with all of that. Where they differ is in how to prioritize and the depth of how to make changes. So the Liberals have a kind of market-based approach to solving the housing crisis and solving uh, housing problems for people who are unhoused and homeless, but the NDP would would rather say, you know, let's let's get more people to buy houses. Absolutely, let's you know, let's do things like double the home buyer's tax credit. Let's you know offer many many incentives so that young people can buy homes. But we also have to intervene at the level where people simply can't afford even the most basic, you know, cheapest apartment in the cities that they live in, and if and those ones that they can't afford are inadequate, that they are themselves a violation of a certain level of human rights. So the Liberals and the NDP aren't too far apart. I mean, housing is one example. Paid sick leave is another example. The, the Liberals would prefer to encourage and incentivize companies to provide that sick leave. But the NDP would say, like, the, the federal government must lead and for federally regulated industries, the sick leave must be adequate to the crisis that we're in. Yeah, and in terms of what's been happening so far in the conversation with respect to COVID relief, most of it has been focusing on workers and people who are trying to get back into the workforce and, like you said, uh, homeowners. Now, when it comes to renters, we've seen in Ontario, we've seen in Alberta, we're seeing it in British Columbia. Um, any temporary moratorium on evictions has been lifted and people are starting to get kicked out of their homes again. And as you pointed out earlier, homelessness and poverty is a huge issue. And even for folks that would normally be part of the quote unquote middle class that the government loves to talk about, people are now finding themselves squeezed even further. And we're now seeing people struggling to maintain the roofs over their over their heads and Toronto is no exception. And we're seeing COVID-19 cases uh, increase almost exponentially in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, both of them have reported uh, over a thousand cases in the last two days alone. Um, what do you think the focus needs to be going forward and why have governments been so slow at the federal and provincial level to react to the second wave of COVID-19 knowing full well it was coming? Well, I mean, I think on the on the rental and provincial governments we have across the country, except in British Columbia, um, conservative governments. And so they're not necessarily 
looking at renters as their core constituency and they're not necessarily looking for them for support. But what that means is that renters level of protection during this crisis is fairly low. We had, there was eviction moratoriums in place. Um, you know, the various ministers kind of finger wagged at landlords to say, Hey, you gotta, you have to be, you know, humane and ethical at this moment. But really at this moment heading in, you know, October onwards, we're about to see a wave and a rise of evictions. And there's absolutely nothing worse for health crisis than people both experiencing a financial crisis, a mental health crisis, and a stability crisis, because it creates, it create, creates vectors for disease where people might be crowding into, into apartments because they're cheaper and they're more affordable. Um, people are going to you know, be kicked out onto the streets because some of them are being evicted from you know, the house they can afford and there's nothing out there to afford. Um, and, you know, for me, it's deeply personal because I, I'm one of those people, like you mentioned, where, you know, I would otherwise be considered middle class, but my landlord decided to evict us so that she could, you know, retake her residence back. But that means that, you know, me and, you know, my little family unit are now on the move in this inner city in a health crisis. And we're looking at moving further than we would have imagined a year, a year ago. And there's no notion or conversation from any level of government about what that means and what impact that's going to have on this health crisis. And so when you're looking at, you know, racialized communities, poor communities, migrant communities, they tend to be on the end of renters. They over-index when it comes to being uh, affected and hit by disease. And they are less able to protect themselves and defend themselves from, from this crisis. And so the fact that there's this this kind of deafening silence from governments on what renters are experiencing is lets us know a lot about how they're managing elsewhere. Yeah. And as you pointed out, racialized communities are disproportionately affected. In fact, a recent report uh, revealed that 83% of new COVID-19 cases in Toronto are in the black community. And that's a major problem considering they're only about 25 to maybe 30% of the population, yet they're overrepresented in COVID-19 cases because, you know, according to this report, many of them are living in larger family homes. Um, they're more on the margins in terms of uh, being renters and being uh, being precariously unemployed. They have to travel farther uh, from the suburbs to get to work and back uh, or to get their kids to school and back. And now we have... Um, an outbreak in a number of schools all across the board in Canada. It doesn't seem to matter what province uh, we're talking about. And yet the supports just don't seem to be in place. And this was a problem even before the pandemic started and it's only being amplified right now. So it boggles my mind that provincial and federal politicians, like you said, seem to not really know what's going on. And to a certain extent, depending on who you talk to, they don't really care either. Yeah, I think there's 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 a number of things happening. So, for example, in Quebec, where the rates of infection amongst Black and racialized communities are fairly high, um, you have a premier who just simply refutes the fact and existence of systemic racism. And yet at the same time, we'll talk about the rates of increase where people are marginalized, where people are vulnerable. Um, then you skip over to Nova Scotia, where today the premier apologized for systemic racism, but at the same time isn't necessarily willing to 
to do the things that have been recommended by previous versions of, of governments or previous commissions about making housing safer, healthier, the things that we're learning schools and apartments need now, like HVAC systems that are stronger and clear, clean the air better, um, and you know, health supports within communities. Those are things that, that we're, we're missing. In Ontario, York Southwestern, which is a, a neighborhood that is very racialized and, and very uh, you know, full of members of the black community, where the infection rates are pretty high, people have been asking and begging for and demanding for a mobile COVID testing unit. And it makes sense to just simply put a testing site where the most number of people are being infected, just so you can understand how the disease is moving through the community. And they're, yet they're still having to beg for this. Um, and you know, that's, what, that's really the, the black experience with governments, with health services, with infrastructure, which is that there are obvious fixes that the black community themselves will name. And we will be very clear that this system can change very quickly and, and you know, on, you know, at a breakneck speed when it needs to. But for black people, there's always this hesitancy, this pushback, this rationalization of, of, the, fa of the fact that the governments are gonna, aren't gonna support black communities. Um, and so I think there's, that is, that is still present. I think that is still ongoing. There's been some responsiveness to it, of course, which is that a uh, number of governments, uh, municipal, provincial, and federal, are saying that now they're gonna finally co collect race-based data. It's a little bit late, but you know, late is better than never. And so these are, these are like moments where it becomes very clear and very apparent whose voice matters in politics. And it's not just about what happens at the ballot box, but also what happens in consultations and in meetings. And when people are writing and signing off checks as, as to who gets support and who gets to be able to hire more staff and more community members, this is when you see that, you know, the black community is desperately underserved and that they cannot necessarily believe or trust that any leader at any level will have their back. And so in a health crisis like this, you, I've seen more black members of the black community turn to each other, turn to one another for support to understand what, what they need to do, what kind of things they need, um, they need in order to survive this crisis and very little from the government support. And so that's kind of, you know, that is the black experience writ large, which is that governments are so either hostile to the idea that they're white supremacist or that racism informs their decision-making to the point of actually excluding people from the services that they pay for, that services that they contribute to. And in terms of the black community at the top of this crisis, these are the people who, because they're often on the margins, because they're making minimum wage, because they live in rental communities, were most likely to be delivery drivers. They were most more likely to work at Amazon warehouses. They were more likely to be personal support workers. They were more likely to be migrant workers who were picking the food that people could go and line up for and wait at Loblaws. And yet, and yet there is this caution and this hesitancy to serve that community when in fact that community stepped up and served when the crisis was called for and they're still demand, still begging for basic services. Yeah, I'm glad you, that you brought that up and uh, let's actually expand a little bit more on those um, community support groups. You wrote an article in The Walrus a couple of weeks ago um, talking about mutual aid groups and something that uh, the black community has been doing 
for you know decades already in uh, numerous communities where as you pointed out earlier they don't trust that the government supports are going to be there and help them because you know systemic racism has uh, permeated our political discourse for generations. Um, tell us about uh, what you wrote about and what mutual aid groups uh, have done for the black communities that could teach politicians and other advocacy groups how to properly care for people. Yeah, so mutual aid was, you know, something that kind of was one of these things that, you know, was kind of like these feel good moments and, and things people were sharing about like how people are getting through this crisis. And, you know, there were, you know, young stu students in universities who were saying that they could, they had time, they were stuck on campus, they could set up mutual aid groups. And I was kind of watching all of this unfold and it was being discussed in, in a, like a new and novel way. And it just felt like something that wasn't new and novel to me because it wasn't new and novel to me. Um, so, you know, in my community and my culture, there's, you know, uh, there's a moment where, or there's, 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 there's sort of this social setting where a, a number of women get together and they, they agree that they're each going to contribute an, an amount of money. So they'll say every single month, 12 of us are going to put in $20 and every single month, someone, one of us women will get that pool. It's a fairly straightforward, very simple system, but it's, it like, it's old as time. It dates, there's no way to date it back because anytime I ask people when they learned it, when they first heard of it, they just simply talk about it being embedded in their skin and in their, in their culture and in their community. So I wanted to write about that because, you know, mutual aid isn't new for black communities. When I was wandering around parts of my neighborhood which are have you know a, a strong black community here people were talking about like they weren't getting support and they weren't getting help from the government they were getting help from one another it was you know someone's son or daughter who had a couple masks from their from their stint working at a hospital who was sharing it out to people who had to go back out into the community and so to me mutual aid is not new it is a really radical idea of the economy, which it, it, if you listen to it, there is no notion, there's no idea of growth. Normally when you have like an investment, you think if I'm gonna put in $20 every single month at the end of that, that total will have some kind of multiplying or exponential factor. There will be more money than I put in. But mutual aid is this really radical economic understanding that says you get out what you put in. And what you put in is the trust you have in this community, in this group of people, and in and you develop a belief in one another about what is possible. So, you know, the one I'm familiar with is is my mom is in one where they 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 pool money to help people whose whose family members pass away back home in Kenya. And it's a fairly simple system. You put in an amount of money, and if someone passes away in your family back home in Kenya, this group puts together several thousand dollars so that when you go back home, it is not as challenging, not as difficult to, to, to bury your loved one. Um, and, and, you know, and there's countless examples. Uh, there's also just like, you know, fun ones that are like birthday groups. So everyone in this birthday group will send you a hundred dollars and on your birthday, you get a couple hundred dollars. Overall, everyone spends the same amount of money. But what is really radical about it is that it doesn't have anything to do with the money. 
women who participate in the system are kind of annoyed to talk about the money. The money is kind of secondary. They want to talk about what is happening in this community, what people were able to do. So they want to talk about who was able to send kids to school, who was able to finally start that business, who was able to afford to bring someone over from back home, who was able to build a house back home, who you know was able to finally achieve something that they wanted to do with that money. And also people can talk about you know what it is that they want for themselves. And this community kind of helps them fulfill that vision. And so what I think is I really took away from understanding about mutual aid is that it is possible to still build and create sustainable societies because mutual aid has been sustaining itself for several decades or probably centuries now um, without, without anyone experiencing what we might consider like classic capitalist growth. No one gets more than they put in. And I think that is such a, a, a real sh mind mindset shift to say you get in what you you get out of it what you put in, but you get more than that in terms of you get a community who's trying to understand you and support you, um, and I think that's I think that's not something we understand fully as a society. I don't think we fully embrace that vision, um, and I, I do think it's something that if we central made it central to our economies. We would have massive shifts in how we understand things to be. Um, and I could give, you know, examples, you know, I, I definitely know in my family, the idea of being kind of generous at this time is, is natural. But what you're seeing governments do is try to find ways to incentivize companies and businesses and individuals to be generous. But what if we just made that central? We just made the idea of generosity for the sake of generosity because it builds communities. Um, part of what we do, I think then maybe we would not have stumbled into this crisis so unaware of the desperate need that is within our communities. Yeah, we wouldn't be as unprepared for crises like this either because people would have funds in the community to backstop any gaps that would occur, you know, due to someone losing their job or like you said, a death in the family where you know, funeral expenses have to be paid. And some of the conversation um, in Canada lately has been about or has been surrounding uh, the notion of a guaranteed livable basic income. And there have been a couple of uh, NDP MPs that have been pushing this idea in Parliament, and it's been gaining more traction amongst the universal you know, basic income movement in general. Do you think that ideas like these could you know somehow work in tandem with each other to create those you know community funds that people could uh, depend upon and and be willing to contribute to for the community rather than just focusing on the individual. I'm not sure. I think it is it is really about coming out of this crisis with a shift in what we think. Our economy needs to do and what it can do um, and so a universal basic income can do a lot but if it's a universal basic income inside this fairly capitalist consumerist individualist society that simply means that one individual is going to get the money that they that they are entitled to from the government and they're going to be encouraged and and required essentially to serve themselves 
at, 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 at every opportunity, at every possibility. And of course, there's examples where people don't do that. They go into public service or they, you know, do want to pay back. But we're still in this capital system. That is still what is going to, to run the majority of what people do. Um, and so I think we can't necessarily have that the universal basic income as some sort of solution without talking about how some of the other solutions are, are exist, but they, they've been, you know, undermined. The fact that our health system was, is, is, is still in a level of underpreparedness for the crisis as we roll into, as we're in the middle of the second wave, there's still that level of, uh, of concern that we might overwhelm our system. A universal basic income can't necessarily solve that. Um, if we're talking about how there has been a severe rise in food insecurity, a universal basic income can't necessarily solve for that because some of that is the fact that communities are in food deserts where there are no grocery stores or that food security is about the scarcity of you know, vegetables and fruits and things that are necessary. And a universal basic in income can't solve for, for that. And, you know, in, on, on indigenous communities where water, the infrastructure around water has been unsupported, it can, it can help, but I don't think that it can necessarily uh, address that concern. So we still have to have that shift in our culture to think about like, what is it that truly supports our communities? If it is a universal basic income, I'm, I say go for it. But we need to also talk about the things that didn't, don't, currently support our communities. The police don't necessarily support our communities. The uh, health system in many ways has fails racialized communities. Uh, our system of work for migrant workers fails them on, on a, fairly, on a fairly serious level. And so I think it's about creating communities that are resilient, but also making sure that there's infrastructure around that. And I think if that was the case, then we wouldn't necessarily need a universal basic income or we wouldn't even need it on the scale that people are talking about because there would be such a depth of support. Let's talk now a little bit about uh, media representation in Canada. Um, there was some news that came out uh, that um, you um, posted on Twitter today um, from yesterday's announcement. The um, CJF and CBC have announced a fellowship um, program known as the uh, Black Women's Journalism Fellowship and supposed to provide uh, opportunity for early career black uh, journalists um, with, you know, uh, various uh, experience in their field. And um, it's one of the first of its kind in Canada. What does it mean to you as a journalist and a writer to see a program like this finally come into fruition? It's, it's so huge because I think there's always been, there's rightly been a sense that we should support Indigenous journalism. And I think that is appropriate. But for Black journalists, it's been harder. It's getting harder and harder to get inside newsrooms. It's getting harder and harder to have sustainable support and, you know, things like editors and mentorship or an understanding of how, you know, the news gets made, whether it's broadcast radio print magazine or otherwise. And that has been challenging to my career when I talk to other black journalists that that is that is truly a missing piece. And so I think it's great that the CJF, their sponsors and uh, the, the broadcasters that they're working with are stepping in to support black journalists because there has not necessarily been that for quite a long time. Um, and I think that is really due to the activism and, and pushing of 
uh, you know, black journalists like Matt Galloway, who's on the, I believe is a CJF board member, um, uh, the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, who's really been, you know, talking, talking to everybody in the community about what's needed and what's required and how, how, how everyone in the news can and needs to support that. Um, but, you know, it's also true that some of these changes are happening as a result of the death of George Floyd and the fact that people couldn't this time afford to look away. I'm concerned that there won't necessarily be this momentum in a year or two when people can afford to look away, when there's, uh, there's when things are less pressing and there is a, a return to some version of a normal. Um, and so I, I think it's great that there's these six month ones. I especially think it's great that there's one for black women because black women journalists uh, live at the nexus of a number of discriminations. And so specific support for black women, I think goes a long way, uh, especially because, you know, black women are really up close with stories in our communities and ideas in our communities that won't necessarily rise to the top in the media industry. Um, and so I think there's that, but I also think it's very true that you don't necessarily need more black journalists in order to do good journalism that serves black communities. You don't need more black people to be less racist. And so I love initiatives like that, but I also think the flip side needs to happen where the white journalism community begins to take responsibility and begins to account for how they failed the community and what they plan to do going forward. Vicky Mochama is a journalist and a writer based in Toronto. Uh, you can find features of her articles in Huffington Post, the Toronto Star, and the Walrus. You can find her on Twitter at vmochama. Thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening, and have yourself a great night. Thanks so much for having me. Like what you've heard on the show? Consider becoming a patron and get exclusive access to early content, extras, and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash left behind podcast to subscribe today. Well, that's it for episode 10 of the LB podcast. I'd like to thank Vicky Mochama, Sherry DeNovo, and Matthew Green for being guests on the show this week. And I'd also like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their support, as well as everyone following us on social media. Don't forget to check out our website, lbpodcast.ca, as well as all of the other great shows on the Harbinger Media Network on their website, harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Farewell for now, comrades.